Hello, 1517 Podcast listeners. This is Caleb Keith, director of the 1517 Podcast Network, with a brief announcement for you. 1517 will be participating in Giving Tuesday this year, that is November 28th, with a $200,000 goal. Our Giving Tuesday campaign has a matching fund this year, and so every dollar you give will be matched. We appreciate your support for the Podcast Network and for the rest of what 1517 does. We work hard to provide high-quality, Christ-centered resources every single day of the week. If you've been enjoying this podcast or many of the other things at 1517, we ask you to please consider supporting 1517 during this crucial time. The end of the year is important for us as we look to close our budgetary needs for 2023 and start off strong in 2024. A $200,000 goal is ambitious, but I know with the support of our listeners on the podcast network and many of the other friends and partners of 1517 that we will be able to reach this goal please consider supporting your favorite podcast and the rest of the projects at 1517 today by going to 1517.org slash giving tuesday and making a gift or you can follow the link in the show notes below that says support this podcast on giving tuesday we thank all of you who continue to partner with 1517 to provide these resources and i hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite 1517 podcast Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the podcast studio, joined by my dear friend and colleague, the Reverend Professor. I still feel torn calling you that because in Germany that makes you sound very accomplished. The Reverend Professor Jason Oakland, and uh, joined also by my department head, by my school chair, um... Dr. Aaron Palmer from the History Department here at Wisconsin Lutheran College. Michael was going to join us, but he had some stuff come up, so he will not be here. But we're very excited to have uh, Dr. Palmer back with us again. You have been on before. Yeah, I think maybe twice. I think it was. And uh, I would say of the four of us, if Mike were here, Aaron has the best radio voice. Maybe. (laughs) get on. I have the worst. <laughs> I put you third, Jason. Oh, well. Mike second. All right, thanks. Aaron yeah. first. Um, but we are going to be talking today about the Salem Witch Trials. I uh, had been doing some American history stuff when I was working on a paper for um, a symposium in our seminary. And then uh, I just lately kind of followed a few rabbit trails um, when I was bored <clears throat> online looking at some stuff. And I thought, you know, we've, I don't think we've ever done an episode on this before. And it would be a bit of a interesting topic you get kind of this important part of american history it makes its way into lore and literature um it gets thrown out all the time when someone's trying to talk about religion or dismiss religious claims um it's 
it's just tied up into a lot of things, and I think a fascinating topic. So we will be looking at that, and Dr. Palmer was nice enough to join us, and Jason is just, he's finally here. He's been skipping yeah. a lot lately. Um, let the bird fry, let the bird fly, not fry. Although oh. Thanksgiving's coming up. Thanksgiving is coming up. We should have called this that. The, this should have been our, the let the bird fry. The let the bird fry episode. Thanksgiving special. Yeah. We're recording yep. the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, um, and so uh, we uh, we wish you a happy Thanksgiving, and we are part of the 1517 Podcasting Network. Um, giving Tuesday is Tuesday, November 28th, 2023, if you'd like to support the network. That's how we get our equipment and all that fun stuff. Um, also, on Friday, November 10th, the Freedom Lessons launched, which is a... Uh, Musical project involving some fifteen, seventeen musicians, but seminary professors and Luther Small Catechism. And you can get that on Spotify and other where music is other places where music has popped up as uh, they kind of walk through the catechism with music. And then finally, um, if you're interested, uh, recently released is Your God is Too Glorious, the second edition by Chad Bird. You can check that out at fifteen seventeen dot org. Now, lest we rob you of any good witch talk, we will give you the disclaimer and make our way to the main topic. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We'll be thinking out loud a lot, so approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because well as a responsible resident of the planet Earth, that's probably what you should do with generally just about everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. Well, that brings us to our to our main topic, which is the Salem witch trials. And I, I think an interesting way to discuss this, and, and this is I've already told Aaron I want to get him in for an episode on this. Um, but when I was working on my symposium paper, I, I asked to kind of bounce some ideas off of you. You may recall, yep. um, because I'm not an Americanist. Uh, I do European history, and uh, you get to American history, and I've done some with it, but uh, but not a ton, especially not a lot of a early American colonial history, which is what Dr. Palmer does. And uh, the paper I was doing was on church and state, and so some of what I was bouncing off was, you know, am I getting this right about kind of the situation with churches in, in America early on? We talked a little bit, Pilgrim, Puritan stuff. Um, but what became a really interesting point that Aaron brought up and I got to dig in more was um, how many uh, states before the United States becomes an independent country had an established religion, um, and then this trend towards disestablishment that happens with the founding documents. But also, uh, you said something that struck me. Um, 
And I think it's a helpful corrective for kind of the simplistic narrative many Americans have that we think of lots of people coming to America for religious freedom. And we think of that meaning like, oh, they wanted to come where everyone could just be free to practice their religion. And you made a pretty good observation um, that helped me with my paper too is that, well, a lot of them came to be free to practice their religion. Um, This wasn't carte blanche religious toleration that they were looking for, um, but they were looking to have their religion be essentially the established religion. And and that's, um, I think that, that plays in somewhat to the Salem Witch Trials as far as the background for the type of community that had been founded, how it was operating, and how it was uh, taking place. And so I think maybe it's, if, if this works for you as a, a springboard for getting started, if it's helpful to maybe uh, Thanksgiving's coming up to, to set the table um, of why um, the people in Salem are there, what kind of community they've set up, and what the relationship uh, between church and state is. Well, that's key to understand that if you're getting into Salem. Um, it's part of Massachusetts Bay Colony. So this is founded in um, 1629 by a group of people in England called the Puritans. And that was not a name they took for themselves. That was a derogatory name. Um, they wanted a pure Church of England, free of all popish elements. So they wanted a pure Calvinist church organized around mainly a congregational sort of setting. Um, So they start coming to Massachusetts, 1629, to establish what John Winthrop called the city on a hill. And this has a very specific mission. That'll come up later in American history. (laughs) Oh, yes. Um, It keeps coming up. Uh We still think this way. But the idea was that we will build this society that will be so good and so godly that the whole world will have to pay attention to us. And the, the power of this will be in its reforming example. So they set up very clearly ground rules for success. Success is we order our lives and our state and our church according to God's word, and he will bless us. If we don't, he will punish us. So everything is measured in those terms in, in a place like Salem, which is in Massachusetts. Is So there's... Um, you know, an Indian war, and it's very destructive in 1676. There's another one in 1692. There's um, the revocation of the Massachusetts Charter in 1684. All of these things are interpreted as God punishing us for not following clearly our mission. And if the devil is present among us, and it was believed he was, it's because God is allowing him to afflict us through his servants, which are, of course, the witches. So um, this is a place that has this clear sense of mission, but almost from the beginning was drifting away from it. It's a very hard thing to do. You get into the second and third generations, and they don't have that same zeal for it necessarily. You start to see standards for church membership loosening up, things like that. So there is this sense that something's wrong here. Um, we haven't done what we were supposed to do. And now this isn't history. Um, Arthur Miller's The Crucible is very bad history. (laughs) But one of his characters has a great line, one of the judges, um, you know, sort of, what what are we doing here? And he says, I tell you, I will not rest until once again every inch of this province belongs to God. (laughs) And that's actually 
that was never said in reality, but it was a sentiment that I think the leaders of all of this sort of shared. Would um, along those lines, uh, <coughs> as someone who does European history in 16th century, you have a lot of similar thoughts about the community or the state suffering because of impurity, uh, especially heresy. For instance, with the the French wars of religion and anti-Huguenot thought of, you know, France as a Catholic nation, nation, what one king, one you know, one yeah. faith, um, and this is this is like polluting the the body of Christians, and with Puritanism, which is going to come out of Calvinism, there seems to be this emphasis, especially that you don't find Lutherans can be anti-Catholic. Don't get me wrong, but there's not this like impulse against every thing that might be associated with what would be called papism as much as you'll have that come out of some of the reform movements. Um, But you had had, under Roman Catholicism, uh, inquisitions, you had had suspicion of people being witches. Um, And is there maybe a sense to which the Puritans in the New World are trying to outdo the Old World and showing how seriously they're they're taking this possible contagion, um, it doesn't have to be specifically witches, but you kind of have like I mean you do have the Inquisition in the old world, which is this history yeah. of, of rooting things out, and these are not um, official arms of, of the Roman Catholic Church often, but they're run by states or territories for the purity of the community. Um, how would you compare or contrast maybe the impulse that we see develop here? in Salem with, with that? Well, um, the Puritans from the beginning were very concerned about, well, purity. Um, and like you said, they're not interested in religious freedom for anybody other than themselves. So early on, you get people like Roger Williams, who has disagreements with the Puritan leadership. You get Anne Hutchinson. They are banished from the colony. Quaker missionaries show up. Um, some of them are hanged. Um, you know, Witchcraft is a, is a heresy. It's the ultimate heresy, essentially. It's the worship of the devil in the, the minds of the theologians. So it's not... It's like the first great American satanic panic. Yeah, it is exactly that. Um, yeah. But you also have to understand they felt like the whole world was against them. They were the only really pure people. That's a hard thing to, to think about yourself. And they also believed they were basically surrounded by the devil's children. Um, the Indians. Um, they had been persecuted by a Catholic popish king uh, in James II very recently. There's sort of a siege mentality with these people. And, you know, no, under normal circumstances, the Puritans don't have an inquisition. They're not running around looking for witches. That actually almost never happens in, in England or America. Um, there's a handful of cases as they arise, usually coming out of community disputes and arguments. But you, you throw into this this atmosphere of crisis coming out of the Glorious Revolution, King Philip's War, now King William's War, um, this sense of... Turning of the tides for them. Yeah, the mission is failing. It doesn't take much for this to get out of control really, really quickly. Um, and the funny thing is it could have gotten much worse had finally not the ministers kind of put the brakes on this toward the end of it. But it, it it's, again, something that isn't routine, right? There's only one Salem. There's other 
incidents of people being prosecuted for witchcraft, but there's nothing like this. Which is perhaps what makes it stand out so much in, in the American mind, you know. Yeah. Um, and why we can talk at the end if you want. I haven't been there, but we were discussing that it. It's pretty kitschy now. <laughs> what, but, you know, yes. so it stands out. In relationship to that, and then we can, can, in a moment, maybe set the stage for how the trials break out. But, you know, I, you hit on, they're not, oh, yep, just one second. Yeah, they're sure. not act, actively looking for, it's not like they just, this starts because they say we got to find witches. No. Um, but maybe we, I'll go to you, Jason, but maybe we can hit on next. A little bit of the context, too, because you mentioned the ministers pulling back. Are these trials going to be a state trial, a church trial? How are church and state relating, right? Because we, we, we talked the other day, and you, you noted they're not the same thing, but they're, it's different how you relate to the state based yeah. on religion than what we might think today. I was just thinking, um, <clears throat> so like I know that they, they've talked about some of the, you know, and you mentioned the community disputes and things like that, and especially in like a, a you know, puritanical context where you're talking about you know, your absolute perfection of, of behavior is, is expected, I mean, and, and thought to be attainable, right? I mean, that's kind of the, what they're hoping for, at least ideally. And, and, you know, certainly, you know, there's, there is that push in reform circles toward, you know, morality and behavior, I think, um, in excess to a degree, which I think you, you see that and, and see that with the Puritans, but, um, I guess kind of some of the things that in thinking about, you know, that pressure of, of, you know, purity of living um, and then having this, these ongoing disputes or, or feuds even, you know, um, within the community, um, you know, how, how big a, you know, it doesn't start out as looking for witches, but, you know, how, how big a step is that, you know, to kind of, take that next, uh, to, to cross that next line to say, you know, man, not only are we having trouble and, and you're maybe causing trouble, but how you're, you're the biggest cause of trouble. It's not a huge leap. Um, and there is a great emphasis on, uh, holy sanctified living. And, and that comes out of Calvinism, you know, the idea that for the Puritans, you're God's chosen people. Well, how do you know? Right, that's the big dilemma. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, through through it's like Packer fans, this is why they're that's why they're really <laughs> wrestling now with, that's with, right. with this season. <laughs> well, yeah, they uh, holy living is the ultimate indication of your status as as elect. Although that's not enough in and of itself for some people, um, but we must make society conform to God's word. Um, that's part of the reforming impulse. So one of the things the state does is it enforces, obviously, the law. But what is law? Um, law and, and, put it this way, crime and sin are indistinguishable mm-hmm. in this place. And this is one of the points I want to get to, yeah. So adultery, um, a sin, not a crime in the United States, not usually as far as I know. Um, Self, uh, self-abuse, let's just say. Yes, the um, onanism, uh, as one might say, uh, is is a crime. Um, bestiality, things like that. Um, and they were prosecuted um, quite fiercely at times. So um, you get this problem then of things that we wouldn't consider necessarily to be crimes. Um, 
witchcraft, there are people today who call themselves witches of various sorts. It's not a crime. The First Amendment, you know, if you want to do that, fine, I suppose. In this world, no. That is a capital offense, um, punishable by death in the laws of England and um, Massachusetts. So, Yeah, and and it's kind of interesting, too, like some of the things that get um, brought in under the umbrella of witchcraft, right? I mean, that... that um, if you're, if you're talking about like, um, Wiccan is like, or what people would, people who practice the Wiccan religion that would re, re identify as witches. Sorcery. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe if you want to use that word. Um, but like there's very definite ideas of what all gets, um, brought under that umbrella at that time. Right. That isn't yes. necessarily associated what we would maybe think of that today but um but well the thing is like wicca i mean sorry you know i don't want to offend anybody but i we know have a disclaimer like, don't worry i know there's a lot of wiccans listening to this podcast right uh, that religion is a concoction of hippies in the 1960s sure, yeah. it has no actual root in history or anything of that nature mm -hmm. when we're talking about witches you're talking about a very particular image of what that is yep um someone who is has sold I say her because it's usually a her, soul to the devil, in exchange for powers and in the expectation that that person will do the devil's bidding. It becomes an inversion of um, the mass and an inversion of, of Christianity. The funny thing is, that image is just that, and those people likely never really existed. And it was an image that was kind of drawn together through popular culture, through theology, but as far as actual people who were literally worshiping the devil, sacrificing children, performing black masses, that just didn't happen. And what, what probably ends up happening is there are things that are done that are quote-unquote magic. Um, mostly people look at those things as white magic, and mostly those are holdovers from paganism that were never really cleansed out when Europeans converted to Christianity. Um, but this sort of image of the witch is more of a myth than a reality. And I, I don't, there are a lot of things I don't know about Salem and that no one will ever know. One thing I know for sure is there were no actual witches at Salem. Yeah. yeah. Could, um, could you, Aaron, just hit on briefly, and maybe there's no good reason for it. I, I have conjecture, I've read about it. But it is women who get accused more often um, what have you found as far as is that just the circumstances that it's women accusing women is that because women at the time are seen as being more susceptible to such manipulation um, it's not just women certainly there's a, plenty of men accused at Salem too but right. there especially with Puritanism there was this idea that the female soul was more receptive so it was particularly receptive to evil some of this goes back to, you know, the fall, and, well, it was Eve who, who did it first, sure. right? Um, but it's sort of just the sense that women are more vulnerable to be under the influence of evil. They are weaker Which happens often with the Inquisition and, and other witch hunts in Scandinavia or Northern Europe, yeah. too, yeah. Plus, you know, I mean, like, the, the first people you see accused at Salem, vulnerable women were more vulnerable in the law and in society. So you have people who are, for example... 
older, um, less attractive, quarrelsome, strange. Those are the first. That's your Jasons. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Those are the first with people their little Coca Cola zeros. That's right. Yeah, yeah. In 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 the eyes of the beholder, of course. <laughs> <That's Yeah. right. laughs> so you know the outsiders, the weirdos, right? Yeah. And whenever you're talking about a quote witch hunt, whether that's looking for actual witches or communists or whatever, yeah. Very often that's we go after the the quote unquote weirdos. And and I think you raise a great point. A witch hunt is not inherently religious. Um, no. We have we have seen plenty in in the 20th century and still today of witch hunts, so to speak. The, the desire to find a scapegoat is is very strong, uh, um, and so it, John Demos, one of the great historians, wrote a book called "The Enemy Within" about this whole phenomenon of witch hunting. First witches in Western history were Christians, in this sense. The first, and by witches, I mean secret. Some nefarious, yeah. shady enemy that we fear and want to get rid of. So in early Rome, who is that? That's Christians. You know, later on in the 50s, it's communists. Uh, for a while in the early 2000s, it was Muslims. Yeah. Um, satanic panic thing in the, the yeah. late 80s and 90s. So there's, we, we like to find somebody to take our stuff out against. And in a lot of ways, that's what happened at Salem. These people became... I don't put it this way. There is no lasting significance for this event. None in terms of American history. Yeah, I think you mentioned we don't even know for sure where the executions happen. No. But, yeah. But it is this kind of eternal example of injustice. And that's one of the reasons people keep coming back to it. How could this happen? Yeah. And beyond that, it's an inherently interesting story. And there's some mysteries about it that we just don't know. And that's why people keep addressing it over and over. I mean, every year there's a couple of more books on this, and yeah. you think, what more could there possibly be yeah. to say? Would Would you say um, just a little bit, and, and then we can get to maybe how this happens. But so church and state, they um, Massachusetts is not a theocracy at this time. No. Uh, and yet your church membership does impact your kind of status in the state. I think it's fair to say. Um, could you unpack that just a little bit of how these two are going to relate? Um, the, the state is governed by the charter of the Massachusetts Bay Company. Now, that charter was revoked. Um, it was nullified by a royal court in 1684. So you're actually at a weird point where Massachusetts has no official government at this point. The replacement government was overthrown in 1689, that was the Dominion of New England, James II. Is that January 6th of 1689 or? November I'm 5th. just joking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, Trump was not there. Uh, okay, uh, okay. <laughs> but, yeah, the king was overthrown, and so William and Mary come to the throne by invitation of Parliament. So when Salem happens, you're in the middle of this, where it's like, well, we don't have a government, there's a ruling council, and they're waiting, negotiating a new charter. The church is a different thing. The church is really the ministers, and it's individual congregations who call and hire their ministers. There's a loose sort of structure to it overall, but but not much. So the church and state are not the same thing. But it's the same set of beliefs, the same mission, and again, the state is charged with upholding a godly society. 
Um, and the state also is in charge, ultimately, of structuring the church, too. So there is that. Um, but the, it, it isn't as if the ministers are ruling. This isn't the, uh, uh, what's that TV show that was big for a while? Uh, um, the Eye Beholds or whatever. Handmaid's Tale. Oh, okay. oh no. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, it's not quite that. Huh. Um, although. This is probably what people have in mind when they fear that, though. Well, sure, and the Puritans, let's just, they get a bad rap. We don't want to bash the Puritans. They're fun-loving folk, right? They like <laughs> to drink and dance, and they wore colorful clothes. They aren't all prudes with belt buckles on their hats, you know? Hmm. Um, it, that's an image of the Puritans that was created later. They were very zealous about their religious belief and their mission, and it went too far with Salem. And, and maybe we can get at that, uh, how that emerges then, and I, I know you have to teach in a bit, and i got to go deal with insurance agents um, <laughs> for car stuff. But um, So we spent a lot of time setting the stage because I think, I think this doesn't make sense without understanding the, the context. Uh, but maybe if, if you can give us, Aaron, how this emerges, my understanding is it comes out of the new pastor's household to a certain degree. Yes. Um, and, and how this plays out then. So the minister... And this was a church of Salem Village, which is the outlying area around Salem Town. It's confusing because there's two Salems. It's like the suburbia of Salem, right? Of course, weird things happen in suburbia. <laughs> so Samuel Paris is the minister, and he was really not a very well-liked figure. He had gone to Harvard, got a divinity degree, but then he went to be a merchant in Barbados, failed at that, came back to Massachusetts because he had nothing else to do and he needed a job. And they they had trouble like ongoing trouble with keeping preachers there right it was a very troubled and very divisive congregation with factions and i mean you guys probably been had something like this happen but the, they were very divided and it was hard to keep them together some some alligators yes <laughs> and then um paris comes in and he wants to own the parsonage, and he wants to negotiate a higher salary, so immediately the church is divided. There's a pro and an anti-Paris faction. So mm -hmm. there's the context. 1692, so um, late winter, early spring, two girls, um, Betty Paris, nine, who's Samuel Paris's daughter, and Abigail Williams, 12, who is his niece, fall ill. And by ill, I mean, it would have been terrifying. They, they were having what were called fits, so convulsions, seizures, at times unable to talk, bizarre behavior like digging holes in the ground for no reason, being unable to wake or unable to sleep. So naturally, you, 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 they go get the town doctor who had no answers, and the doctor suggested, well, this is the work of the devil. So now we know what's going on. We have an identifiable problem we can fix. By the work of the devil, that meant a witch, meaning a a servant of Satan is afflicting these children. And Paris, of course, would assume that's because he's so unpopular. So who? Well, there's ways you can find out, and some people will turn to white magic to do that. In fact, that seems to have been the case here. Um, there were a couple of other girls in this circle of friends who were apparently afflicted as well. Uh, one of them was Ann Putnam Jr. So apparently Ann Putnam Sr., asks the slave of Samuel Paris, a woman named Tituba, to bake what's called a witch cake. Now, this is one of these weird Monty Python kind of things. So you get 
the afflicted girls to pee into a cake and then you feed the cake to the family dog and the dog will then identify the witch. Hmm. It didn't work, shockingly. It doesn't work. <laughs> so, um, but that introduces Titiba into this. And there's the real problem. And probably about as vulnerable a person as... You, you couldn't have, have yeah. anyone more vulnerable. Uh, yeah. Someone who's the property of the minister. Well, um, it, we, we, we know this part from a, one of the early histories, and it's some dispute about the facts, but it seems as if these girls and maybe their larger circle of friends were practicing some form of magic, um, fortune-telling games, um, meant to probably identify who they would marry one day, silly kind of stuff like that. Well, the question became, who taught you how to do this? And the girl started pointing the finger at Titiba. Well, she initially denied it, but there's, of course, a very easy way to get a slave to talk. It's you beat them, and that's what Paris does. He begins savagely beating Titiba, asking her to confess, and she did exactly what a slave would do in this case. You say what they want to hear to stop the beating. So she confesses, yes, I am a witch, but it's not just me. There's a whole bunch of us, and we meet at night. We have signed the devil's book. We have seen him in person. And then she names names. She says, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, and I saw nine names total written in the devil's book, but I only saw those other two people that I could identify. <coughs> Excuse me. Those um, were kind of the weirdos in town in some ways. Sarah Good was a very quarrelsome, disagreeable person, same with Sarah Osborne. So they're arrested, they're questioned, and they're questioned by the town magistrates and judges in a very, very leading way. So the questions are never, um, you know, are you a witch? And is, is there a, is there an established structure for how these, how this questioning should go, or this is just the judges kind of have free reign to proceed as they think? They're going off of their own legal training. There's okay. no real procedure established for okay. this. Okay, sorry for interrupting. Oh, that's fine. They, th but generally what the questions you're going to see are, why do you torment these children? When did you sign the devil's book? What does the devil look like? What did he make you do? Not did you do it, why did you do it? So there's an assumption immediately of guilt. Well, um, Sarah Good denied ferociously that she had done anything wrong. Um, Sarah Osborne ultimately is a little more compliant. Titiba confessed. And confessing meant you lived. Um, Titiba survives this whole thing, although it's and sad. And they know that, mean, that will mean that they live? They don't know that for sure, but they mean they'll live for now. And they, they, they have a definite idea. It gives them a better chance of surviving. Yeah, because yeah, that's kind of, yeah, that, you know, persist in your innocence, well, then we'll execute you for sure, right? You know, that's kind of the, the, the gamble that you're taking. Well, and the question, it comes down to evidence, right? How do you prove that someone is a witch? And I, this is what I was going to ask about coming up, is we're going to get a new sort of evidence from what would have been allowed in some of these past trials or in the Inquisition, if I understand correctly, which would be spectral evidence. Yes. Yeah, and this becomes theater. So as more and more accusations are made, and the theory is that probably the accusations are coming at the behest of adults, sort of like the parents. And I don't think there's any conspiracy here, but sort of you're in a panic. You, you're, you, you, you're seeing this bizarre stuff happen to your kids. You think it's a witch, so 
have you seen, uh, oh, I bet Rebecca Nurse. We, we argued with her two years ago. I bet she's doing this. Is, is it? Is it? And then the kids just tell what they they. And I think this is what, like my kids would probably blame Jason for almost anything because <laughs> right. at home they hear me often yeah. you know, and complaining about him. So. Right, and, and that is one. I mean, and this is a pretty small, pretty small town, right? You know, I mean, that you, you know, I mean, even as a kid, you're going to know which families, no, no pun intended, but which, which of those families um, your parents are not real big fans of, or, yes. you know, I mean, that who's kind of on the outs. Um, sure. Yeah. And I, and I don't buy into the conspiratorial takes on this, but I think there's that suggestive thing that's probably happening. So the, you get people arrested and they're brought into the meeting house in Salem, which is And again, the this church. is arrested by the state. Yes, uh, by the town magistrates. They're brought before the judges and also present would be what we call the afflicted, the victims. So very much on cue then, the afflicted will fall into fits when the accused comes in. Um, and the accusers, the afflicted are probably themselves worried about this coming back on them if they were to somehow give up the act. Well, I'm, one of the first modern histories of this by Marion Starkey, it's called The Devil in Massachusetts, still a great book, uh, 1949. Starkey suggested that if Samuel Paris had taken these kids out back to the woodshed in the beginning, none of this would have ever happened. And there is this kind of longstanding theory that this began with kids trying to cover up bad behavior, and it spiraled out Which of their control. Which is very natural, yeah. I, I personally think there's something to that. Um, so the, it's, you know, it gets to be kind of ridiculous. Um, the girls fall into their fits. There's the suggestive questioning. There's also physical evidence. But really the most powerful evidence is what you said, the spectral evidence. So um, I'm sitting here in the courtroom, and um, Rebecca Nurse, who's accused, is brought in. Fall into your fits. Why? Because her specter is tormenting me. It's in the shape of a little bird, and it's pecking at my head even now, and then this just gets out of control. Mm. But that was accepted as actual evidence. The idea that the afflicted could see these spectral images of the witch attacking them, and they testified to that, and that was, again, evidence. And that would have been outside of the norm for this time, right? Yeah. This is for that to play the role it did, at least. This is a special court. There's no government here. So they, the ruling council set up what's called the court of Oye and Termine um, to hear and decide because you're getting the point where the jails are literally full in mm. more towns than just Salem. So we got to clear the jails. And when we say there's no government, there's no official government because of the turmoil. Yes. But these are people acting as magistrates or what we would call governing authorities to some degree. It's an interim government, basically. <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, you, you have to clear the jails and... In terms of evidence, spectral evidence is the key. I mean, there's other things, too. Like, poor old Rebecca Nurse is, like, 80 years old, and she's thought to be a saintly figure. So how she's accused is beyond anyone. But they strip search her, and they find what's called, a, in the records, a protuberance between two of her toes. Well, that was identified as the devil's teat, where the devil's imps would suckle at night. I mean, so she had a mole. Mm. As you get older... Yeah, stuff starts growing out of you, and it, it, Jake, it happens. Jason, could you take your shoes off? <laughs> <laughs> I, have, 
no protuberances uh, <laughs> around my toes. That's what Rebecca Nurse would have said. Too. <laughs> well, she was also hard of hearing. Huh. So very often when she was asked a question, she she couldn't hear it clearly, and and she sounded like she was combative when she really wasn't. The bottom line is, if you were accused and you didn't confess, almost certainly you'd be found guilty, and then within weeks, the hanging would take place. Um, this all finally stopped when the new governor shows up with the new charter, a new court takes over, no spectral evidence is allowed, and then not a single person is convicted. And, and I think a lot of historians have said this is the key to this. People will believe in witches to this day. Courts don't deal with it. Judicial skepticism, or the lack thereof, is what allowed Salem to, to ultimately happen the way it did. And some of the judges were extremely zealous in wanting to root out what they saw as a conspiracy of devil worshippers plaguing Massachusetts. And again, not differentiating sin and crime. As my, We went to the Badger game on Saturday night with my daughter, who's at Madison, and we were walking back. There were some girls that must have been Christian, so um, they were behind us, and they joked, oh, look at those jaywalkers, you know, that's an infraction, whatever, and the girl said, well, it's not a sin, but it's a crime. And I, they didn't know I was listening, and I didn't say anything. I don't want to be a creepy old guy, like, okay, let's talk theology. But I thought that kind of fits this, too, of like, that we sometimes would differentiate those things, and that's just not happening. No, I mean, I think, obviously, we would all say worshiping the devil's bad. Um, but in America... You're free to do that as long yep. as you don't hurt anybody else. You are free to have the Church of Satan down the street if that's what you want. And to want. troll as much as you want. Yep. Yeah. Mm. You know, you can worship a potato if you want to in America, and someone probably does. It's fine legally. Um, here, again, that was not the case. The government had a duty to enforce the moral order and to destroy the enemies of God's holy people. And that's what they thought they were doing. And so we end up with about, what, 19, 20 people um, hanged. Uh, um, well, actually, it was, uh, I believe it was 20 hanged, and one man was pressed to death. Um, <laughs> that was Giles Corey. He's this cranky old guy. That sounds worse than hanging. Mm. Oh, they don't use torture in the English system, but he, was, he knew a little law, and he knew that if I don't enter a plea, they can't put me on trial. So there is this little glitch in English law called strong and hard pain. You don't enter a plea, we can torture you. So they tie him down, lay him on the ground, they start putting rocks on his chest. One rock, two rocks, more. And he still wouldn't offer a plea. His last words were more weight. Oh, geez. And it crushed him to death. So um, if you know who Henry Wadsworth Longfellow is, great American poet, wrote a, a, po a poetic play called Giles Corey of the Salem Farms. Huh. And made Giles Corey into a hero and gives him the line, I will not plead in courts where ghosts appear and swear men's lives away. Uh -huh. So Giles Corey is a, nice. one of the fun figures in this, but um, he, he would not name names. He would not participate. And that does make him kind of a hero. Yeah. And yeah, he's often sure. viewed as a turning point that seeing someone like that willing to go to his death, seeing 
so many people of such different social strata accused, at some point people start asking questions, as they did in the McCarthy hearings, as, as is always happens yep. with these things. It reaches a critical mass. Would you say, and I know we got to let you go in a second here, so at the time in the, the rest of the, the colonies and on the continent, um, is there any like contemporary reaction to it, or most of the reaction will come later to what's happening here? Um, it's later. Not too many people in Europe care what's happening in Massachusetts, honestly. And it's really the first historical writings about it are from the people who were there, and then Thomas Hutchinson, the governor of Massachusetts in the era of the American Revolution, um, wrote a history of Massachusetts where he very much vilifies the Puritans and uses Salem to do it. You know, and you start to get this image of, well, they're these bigots, these intolerant, small-minded people who are out there burning witches, even though no one was actually burned at Salem. Um, and it does terrible damage to the way we understand the Puritans and think of them in that sort of very prudish, um, intolerant mindset. And that's not really who they were. Now, I would guess for someone like that and for some of the Founding Fathers, it conveniently feeds a narrative that lends itself to disest- disestablishment in America sure. that that this is what happens when you let the church get um, too churchy in an official way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I will leave you the last word um, before we let you go, but anything that um, you mentioned, it's kind of odd this stands out as such a big thing in American history when it isn't something that has a lasting impact. Um, anything that, that stands out to you about the trials, I assume they come up in class uh, um, sometimes, but anything as far as their particular importance or a lesson that, that would be learned? I think they stand as a good illustration of the kind of crisis of the New England mind of this era and how New England is starting to transition away from its roots into a more secularized version of Puritanism, what we call Yankee culture. So a lot of the moral values, but without theology. Um, Someone like John Adams kind of represents that very well. Um, And again, it just stands as a great example of injustice and a great lesson to learn here. I think anyone who wants to be a criminal lawyer on either side ought to study this case and learn a little bit about how ordinary people on juries can create such injustices. And that's what we often forget with Salem, too. It was juries who convicted these people. It was their neighbors. Mm. Uh, In one case, Bridget Bishop, I think it was something like, 30 of her neighbors came forward and testified against her. Yeah, she's a witch. Imagine if you were that disliked. I right. mean, yeah, yeah. When your whole neighborhood wants to see you. I'm going to start mowing hanging. my lawnmower. Yeah. You might want to start <laughs> raking your leaves, too. <laughs> uh, this guy got a warning about his snow last week. That's right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. You stay on top of that. I know. Yeah. Well, Aaron, we, we thank you for joining us, and I and appreciate you kind of cramming this in, too. With your permission, at some point, I'd love to get you back on, on kind of early America, colonial America. Church and state disestablishment. Yeah, I'd be happy um, to. I think I think that's something I didn't grasp much at all before doing working on stuff, and I think a lot of us maybe don't grasp as much and how unique a setting um, America becomes for Christianity, so yeah. different from what it experienced before. Um, but with that, I won't. Do you know what to say at the end? I don't want to put you on the spot if you're not sure. I I'm not sure. Okay, so we I, we won't put you on the spot. Um, but thankfully, no Salem witch trials going on. Uh, nothing um, we have to worry about with that. But we can also give thanks that we, we have a God who 
deals with us in grace and with mercy um, and uh, has given us, uh, I would say, um, a good measure of justice for the most part in our in our time um, that we to give us guardrails in this country against such things. And so we can rejoice, and especially as we go into Thanksgiving, we can... Let the bird fly. Thank you. Or... <laughs> I muted you, but you can say it again, Jason. That's good. <laughs> All right, as I say, or fry. Or fry, because Thanksgiving. Going into Thanksgiving. Yes. Yeah. I don't mute us now for the music, but yeah. just thank you. Don't again. burn your house down if you do. Exactly. Right. That, right. Someone always does. Another round, another round.